Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, grab it. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Last week, uh, we started this chapter, and it's a chapter on communion. And we talked about how communion is a kiss. That it's not a uh, it's not a junior high kiss. It's not a kiss that's stolen on the playground. You know that like your first kiss. You not really know what's happening. You know you just feel tingly all over. That's not what communion's about. Communion also is not like a first date kiss. You know where you kind of feel like because you bought dinner you have the right to push back uh, all the facts that you don't know each other and really go in just for the pleasure of your lips touching someone else's lips. That's not what communion's about. And so we painted this very beautiful and romantic picture that communion is like two 90-year-old people that are puckering up and kissing one another. It's very enticing, isn't it? It is if you're 90. Uh, You're just thankful that you can still kiss somebody. But it's the idea of two people that have given their lives one to another, and there's no mystery there. That they're stepping in and saying, you know what, I've been through the good, I've been through the bad, and I've been through the ugly with you, and I still want the intimacy of kissing you. Because that's what communion is. Communion is, is that Jesus is saying, hey, there's no mystery to Jesus about who you are. You think he is shocked when you come to the communion table and he goes, oh, I didn't know that was there. You know, Jesus knows it all, and yet he still puckers up and he says, I want to kiss you. It's a kiss of redemption. It's a kiss of healing. It's a kiss of forgiveness. It's a kiss of grace that pours right into the very essence of our lives. And we talked last week about the communion is not just about Jesus kissing me. It's also about me kissing Jesus back. That the table is about remembering, but it's also about proclaiming, about me putting my affections in the direction of Jesus as he puts his affections in the direction of me. But Paul doesn't stop there because in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about that communion's not just this vertical experience. He also says that communion is a horizontal experience. Matter of fact, he says that if you understand how the communion table is a 90-year-old kiss, we're just going to drive that illustration into the ground, all right? So stay with me. Uh, that if that's a 90-year-old kiss of knowing, that communion is also a kiss of us kissing each other. Some of you are like, amen, brother. When I was in college, I'd only been a Christian for about a year, so this whole Jesus thing was new to me. And, uh, you know, there are all kinds of campus ministries on campuses, and this guy came up to me one day in the cafeteria and said, hey, I'd love to invite you to this Bible study, and I didn't want to go alone. I said, sure, I'll go. I mean, Bible, Jesus. And so I went back to my room, and Chuck Harrison, my roommate, uh, who uh, was this French-speaking Cajun from South uh, Louisiana who grew up Catholic and had never been to a Bible study in his life. Literally, he didn't know that actually people owned Bibles. He thought that's what priests did. And uh, I said, Chuck, you got to go to this Bible study with me. So we go, we get the directions to this person's house, and we walk in, and all these people are sitting around, and as soon as we walk in, they all get up, and one by one they came over, and they gave us not, not hugs, you know what I mean? Not, it wasn't like, you know, like the side or the, you know, the tut, 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 you know, kind of hug. This was like full body, you know, lingering, embracing hugs. And before we separated, and most of the people in this Bible study were young women, they kissed us. 
I was like, okay, this is a new experience. Chuck said, uh, yeah, this Jesus thing works for me. <laughs> we, we're going back to that Bible study. That's not what I'm talking about here, all right? And that's not what Paul's talking about. So let's read and see what he's talking about. 1 Corinthians 11, and we're in verse 7. You can look in your Bible, or you can uh, follow along on the screen. And the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So Paul is saying when you gather together to worship, it's, it's bad. It's like you're doing more harm than any good that you might be doing. In the first place, I heard that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. I mean, this is the church that uh, we're suing each other. This is the church that uh, the guy was dating his mother. This is the church where they were fighting over, hey, I follow Paul, the other I follow Apollos, that they were obsessed with their preachers and who followed who. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So Paul is basically saying, yeah, okay, I, I believe it now. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Did you hear that? People were getting drunk at the communion, at the communion table. They were coming together for communion, and people were getting hammered. They were getting trashed. They were getting drunk. So, here's the takeaway. When we come to communion, don't any of you get drunk? We laugh, don't we? Because we serve grape juice here, all right? That's because we know that some of you can't handle your alcohol, and that little thimble of wine might throw some of you over the top. Now, that's another sermon. We'll talk about that another time. But he is saying something here, because what's going on in Corinth? And what was going on was uh, when the church gathered, they needed a place to gather in. And the only places they had to gather were people's homes. And the only homes that were big enough to handle the gathering were people that were wealthy. And so people that were wealthy were saying, oh, yeah, y'all just all come on over to my house and we'll worship and we'll celebrate the Lord's table and communion. We'll do it all together. And so the wealthy people, because they had a lot of leisure time and they had uh, a lot of leisure resources, they would basically call each other and say, hey, look, why don't y'all all come on over early and we'll all eat dinner before everybody else gets here. And everybody else, what they meant by that was all the people that couldn't get there early, which were all the people that had to work or all the people that were slaves, and they had to serve their master's dinner before they could get away and come over to the worship service. So all the people that had means and didn't have to work were gathering early in the dining room, and they were bringing all kinds of food because they could afford to bring food, and they were bringing all kinds of wine. And so they were eating and drinking, and they're having a great time as the poor and the slaves and the people that had no means are getting off work. They're coming into the atrium because everybody else is in the dining room. They're out here in the courtyard gathering. And when it was time to finally worship, all the wealthy people who've been eating and drinking for hours now came into the atrium to worship with everybody else. But this time, they've been partying just a little bit too long. 
Get the picture? I mean, what's wrong with that? Because here's what's amazing about this passage, is that Paul is not coming down on them because they're drunk. That's not the issue that he decides, because he could have easily said, hey, when y'all gather together pre-communion, you need to have oduls and not, you know, yazoo. He could have said, no alcohol. He could have said, how dare you bring alcohol to any kind of, he didn't do any of that, did he? Because his point wasn't that you guys were drinking too much, although that could be an issue, and that's a whole other topic for us to talk about. What he's saying, the point is, is that it's dividing you as a community. Look at verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, this is at the end of the passage, his final charge. When you gather to eat, you should all eat together. In other words, he was saying the abundance of one group is dividing it from the group that doesn't have anything. One's going hungry. The other's getting drunk. You have too much. It's dividing you. So what should we do? Well, Paul doesn't say, hey, you that are wealthy, give up all your wealth and give it to the poor. He could have said that. He could have said, sell your houses and sell everything that buys all the food. Distribute it. Let's all be a socialist here. Everybody have the same amount of money, the same amount of things. Let's all dress alike. Let's all drive the same kind of cars. Let's all act alike, talk alike with the same accents and everything. Let's all become alike so we can't tell any differences from one another. He doesn't say that, does he? Matter of fact, Scripture goes on to the next chapter to say, guys, we should celebrate our diversity. Matter of fact, you know, the way that you're different from me, I should celebrate that. I should exalt it. I shouldn't let it become the thing that divides us. In fact, I should let it be a part of what makes us beautiful and unique. Because something's true here. We are one body. If we're in Christ, and this is what Paul was saying, we are one body. That is true. We are united. Now, whether or not you're letting that truth come to the surface or not, and letting that play out in this community or not, that's another thing. But we are united. That's a theological truth. Everyone that is in Christ are part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And what's even more important and beautiful is, is when you live out of the uniqueness of who you are, when you live out of the giftedness of you, who you are, that's better for all of us. Imagine for a minute that we all wanted to go snow skiing. You know, and we're adding up the cost and everything, and we're saying, man, we can't afford it. I mean, do you know how expensive it is to go to Aspen and stay for a month? Because you really need to stay for a month to really learn how to snowboard. Otherwise, you're just a poser. And, you know, and so we're all talking, how do we do this? And somebody gingerly raises their hand and goes, you know, I didn't want to say this, but uh, I'm actually a billionaire, and I own a house up in Aspen. What would we say? Who do you think you are? I hate it when you pull that card out and tell us who you really are. We wouldn't say that. We would go, we love you. Yes, you should express who you truly are so that we can enjoy the blessings of the reality of your position in life, right? How's that any different from your gifts? But we are divided. Although, theologically, we're united, reality-wise, we become divided, right? Or are we? Is the church ever divided? 
<laughs> I don't know what that was. It sounded like a leaking tire. <laughs> I mean, when was the last time that you came to Midtown and you were thinking, hey, I'm going to go to lunch with a bunch of Midtowners? And they're all out in the parking lot, and they go, yeah, we're going to the Palm because we can afford it. Can you afford it? Well, no, I don't have that much money. <laughs> Sorry. See you later. We're going to drink too much. Has that ever happened to you here? You know, has anybody ever snubbed you because they're so rich and they can afford to do something and you can't? That probably doesn't happen a lot here. But there are other divisions in this community. Let's think about them just for a minute. There are groups that are artists, and then there are groups that are, well, they don't even use these, non-artists. There are people in here that are moms, and there are people who are not moms. There are people here who are visitors. <laughs> Did you just love that word? I'm a visitor. And then there are people here who are regular. Or should I say you're regulars? You may be regular. Good for you. Because <laughs> that's what Jesus says. If you're a regular here, you will be regular. There are, there are people here who are cool. Now, let me say, there are people here that are cool. And there are people here, you know, you just, you're not cool. All right? Let me just say this. If you wear your pants above your chest, you're not cool. If you wear them, well, then maybe you are cool. There are people in here that are hot. And then there are people in here, you know what, you're just not so hot. You know what I mean? Like, have, and I'm talking mainly to you single people right now. Are there any hot people in this room? I have had men told me, tell me that have never been to Midtown, oh, you're the pastor of Midtown. Yeah, my friends have told me I should come down there. <laughs> what? What? And they're not talking about my preaching. There are beautiful women in this place. And there are some guys that need help, all right? <laughs> but what I'm saying is, have you ever walked into this room and start to categorize people? Artists. <sighs> Mom. <sighs> Loser. <sighs> hot. Let's go in this direction. All right? Ah, get away, get away, get away. Student, non-student, homeless, not homeless. See, we have the ability, and I want us to step into this journey, we have the ability to divide ourselves on everything regardless of how small it is. I can use almost any category whatsoever to decide whether or not you're somebody that deserves my attention and my time or someone that I won't give any time or attention to whatsoever. I can even do it based on my assumptions of what I think you're thinking. You ever done this? Oh, I've seen that look before. I know exactly what you're thinking. Sorry. I'm out of here. I can do it on anything. See, it's easy for me to create a box that, that I can put you in, and it doesn't take me long to assess you and say that's the box that you belong in. And the problem with me putting you in a box is because with that box comes all kinds of judgments, all kinds of determinations. And when I do that, then I begin to divide. 
I begin to do what they did in Corinth, where there are those that have and those that have not. And so we decide what the list is that we're going to establish that determines who has and then who has not. We do it. We love to be in groups. We love to be in our own little cliques. We love to be in circles that feel safe and feel like we're accepted, and it protects us from the big bad world of other people that are not like us. And Paul is saying to us here at Midtown and the people here at Corinth, guys, we cannot afford to be divided. We cannot afford to pretend like God has not united us. If we are Christ followers here today, we are a family. We are brothers and sisters. And Jesus even says so much that this is important. This is huge. Unity is big time. Not only does it help us understand who we are, it also reveals to the world who we are. Jesus said, the way you love one another will show them that you're my disciples. So how do we do that? How do we bust through our prejudice? How do we bust through all these social you know, jugglings? How do we come into this place where there's so many different kinds of people and really live out unity? How do we kiss each other? Now, once again, I'm not recommending that you leave here, find that person that you would like to kiss, and kiss them and say, Randy said, hey, unless you were married to them, in which case, have at it, right? First, I got to kiss myself before I can kiss you. What does that mean? (laughs) It means that I have to begin to understand myself before I can understand anything about you. I have to be careful that when I come into community that I have not brought in with me a whole bag of expectations. Let's go to James chapter 4. James talks about uh, division and what causes problems. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. What is he talking about there? When he says that, oh, where'd it go? Leave it up there. Thank you, Warren. Battle, the, the desires that battle within you. What does he mean when he says that I'm quarreling because there are desires that are competing for one another inside of me? I want to suggest to you that the, the desires that battle inside of me are the deep desires that the Lord has placed inside of me. And here's what's crazy about these deep desires that the Lord has placed inside of me. If I don't have the courage to look at how deep those desires are, if I don't have the courage to look at how profoundly huge those desires are, if I don't have the courage to look and see that there is no way that I can actually meet that desire in my own life, then what we're going to do is cheapen those desires to the cheapening to the level to where I think I can meet them. Let me give you an example. How about intimacy? A desire for intimacy. I believe that's one of the desires that God has planted in us from the fall. It's just his thumbprint right on us. When you look at the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's a picture of intimacy. They fully know each other. They fully love each other. They fully experience and and appreciate and celebrate one another. 
They don't take away from each other, even though each of them holds different roles and positions and responsibilities within the Trinity. It's a beautiful picture of intimacy. And I believe that when God created us, he put his thumbprint on us because God is a God of intimacy. And what is intimacy? The desire to be so deeply known and deeply loved and the desire to deeply know and to deeply love. And we hunger for that. We long for that. But that is such a huge thing to be known and to be loved. And it's so huge that I have no control over it. Like say, for example, today I'm going to find somebody that's going to deeply know me and deeply love me before dinner tonight. Is that possible? It doesn't seem possible, so we cheapen that desire. And we cheap it to where we finally say, all I want is somebody to be close to me. And so we substitute intimacy with sex. In any way that I can get it to satisfy my desire to feel like I'm known, to feel like I can see. I think that's why men are so drawn to the Internet and all the temptations that are there because we get to look behind the curtain. We have no right to look behind that curtain, but we sneak behind that curtain, and it feels like I'm getting to see something very intimate. And it seems like it's drawing me into intimacy, but it's a false intimacy. It's a lie. It's drawing me into what feels like intimacy because I've cheapened the deepest desire to be fully known and fully loved to something that just feels good. See, if you have a problem with sex, which Scripture tells us that any of that outside of marriage, that's not what the Lord desires for you. In fact, he says that's not what the Lord's designed you for. And if you're expressing yourself in that way, you've already stepped away from the Lord. And the Lord is saying, hey, come back. Because your problem isn't a sex problem. Your problem is an intimacy problem. Let's keep going. How about peace? A deep desire for peace. Man, who does not want peace? (sighs) No worry. A deep breath. We were made for that. But that's another one of those desires that seems so huge. It's like a rock so big that I don't know how to pick that up. How can I possibly get peace? And so what do I do? I cheapen peace to where I finally, all I want is a peace of mind, which leads me to all my addictions. Everything that numbs me and fools me and deceives me into thinking that I have peace. Why? Because the desire for deep, lasting peace that that envelops me and sets me free, that rock's too big to pick up. But what I can pick up is, man, give me a bottle of wine and I will feel all right. I've cheapened that desire to where I can be in control of it. Or how about love? I love this one. Did God give me a desire for love? Well, Scripture says God is love. So if God is love, then where did that desire for love come from? Thumbprint from the fall. He made us that way. Isn't that amazing? I want to love. I want to be loved. But that desire also is so huge. And here's what I'll do. I will cheapen it by saying, this is what love means to me. Who will meet that expectation? <laughs> I found out when I first got married that, uh, that women, you speak in code. Let's just be honest, all right? You speak in code. And uh, so it wasn't, Renee and I were just married just for a couple of months and I say to her, uh, what do you want to do tonight? And she goes, 
I don't know. What do you want to do tonight? That's code, men. You're being set up, all right? Let me just say it right now. Because what she's saying is, you better say that you want to cuddle with me on the couch, eat popcorn, and watch Pride and Prejudice until noon. No, really, what do you want to do? I'm not being fair to Renee. You know, because guys never have expectations. You know? Us men, we just accept life as it comes. No, you know what we do to love? We put all kinds of expectations on it, and we say, love is this. Matter of fact, we have the ability in community to change hope to expectation. Hope to expectation. What I'm saying is, is that I begin to believe that what I feel is true. So I come to Midtown, and I have this expectation. What are your expectations when you came here? And I'm not talking about you know, the sermon or the music, you know, because we all complain about that. I know you do, you know. I I do, you know. Uh, We all do. But when you walk in here community-wise, what are your expectations today? Have you ever come to this event or have you ever gone to a party and before you get to the party, you play out in your mind what you think is going to happen at that party? That when I run into him, I'm going to say this, and then he'll probably say that. And then, you know, if I'm just coy enough, then maybe we'll end up at lunch together or something, you know? Or whatever the scenario is, and we come into a situation with expectations. And we come in, and that person that we were expecting to have this dynamic, lively conversation that was going to lead to an afternoon of pride and prejudice, you know, doesn't even see that I'm here. Doesn't even talk to me. My expectations are crashed, destroyed. And I leave feeling because my expectations were not met. I'm not just unloved. Now I am angry, I'm isolated, and I am alone. And I go home with a bunch of ice cream. And I don't watch Pride and Prejudice, you know. I watch Die Hard. And I... And I'm just eating and because now my feelings have defined for me what is true. I am unlovable, and that church stinks. I hate going to Midtown. <laughs> wow. Expectations demand that things work out the way I want them to work out. And when I live by expectations, I move to this safe place where the people around me are safe and they protect me. The rich with the rich, the poor with the poor, the artist with the artist, the businessmen with the businessmen, the moms with the moms, the non-moms with the non-moms. We become self-protective. But hope, unlike expectation, hope brings me to God and that he is the meter of my deepest desires. I come with hope that the Lord is going to meet my deepest desires for intimacy, my deepest desires for peace, my deepest desires for love. Because I understand this. He's the one that created my deepest desires. Why? So that through hope I can run to him and hear what he says in the Psalms that he gives me the desires of my heart. And here's what's amazing. If I'm willing to go on that journey in Romans chapter 5, Even my suffering now becomes means by which I can experience intimacy 
peace, and love. And it says hope does not disappoint because it reveals that God is pouring his love out into our hearts. And what happens when I begin to experience those things and I step into community? I stop expecting those things from you and I start bringing those things to you. The second thing is that we see each other. It's amazing. When I began to live out of this truth that the Lord meets my deepest desires, I begin to see you for what you really are. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, we now regard no one from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. We begin to see each other for who we are. We are made new. We are people that have been changed. We are forgiven. We are blessed. We are loved. We are holy. C.S. Lewis put it this way, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortals. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacraments itself, your neighbor is the holiest object present to your senses. If he is our Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. We begin to say, I'm going to see you in a different way. It's a beautiful thing. And then finally, what do we do when we begin to see each other that way? We invite. And this is what I'm encouraging you to do here. How do we unite? We do it by inviting. We simply extend the invitation to step in to our world or the invitation for us to step into your world. And I'm telling you right now that it's a risk. For you to look at somebody in this room and say, they're not in my world, you know what? I can tell we're kind of, we're kind of different age-wise or status-wise or you know, lifestyle-wise or whatever. We're different. For me to step across this aisle and say, this place is going to be a better place when I step across this aisle and say, I invite. I invite a conversation. I invite a name. I invite, let's grab lunch. I invite whatever that invitation may look like. You risk. If you don't know, you should have been with me when I was in ninth grade. Janet Ernest was the first girl I ever picked up the phone and said, would you? She said no. Any of you ever had that experience? Janet said no to a lot of people. That was heartbreaking. And it hurt. And I said to myself, I do never, I never want to feel this experience or these emotions ever again. Have you ever been there? I will never feel this way. So how will I never feel this way? I will never ask anybody ever again to do anything with me. And we make these commitments. And so what do we do? We stand at a distance and we kind of say, yeah. And then even when people ask you to do something, your answer is, well, we'll see. You know, because you're always kind of being in this self-protective kind of coy place of just, well, you know, just, I, you know, I'll make my decision, you know. And just you're, you're weighing out the situation. You want to know everything that's going on. Even the, before you get to the party, who's there, who's there, what's happening. You know, okay, that's, what are they dressed like? Okay, 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 everything's cool now. We, I, I've protected myself. I'm here. You got to get over that. It's Peter Block who said, Oh, this is just perfect. He says, change is self-inflicted wounds. And that's what I'm asking you to do is to change. 
I remember uh, I was invited by Renee's dad. I'd never met him before to come and meet him. She dropped me off at the country club, and it turned out I was going to play golf with him and his golf buddies. Her dad was a scratch golfer. So I step up, and I've got long, you know high-top tennis shoes on. i got a golf club that I bought at a garage sale and a T-shirt and jeans. And I'll go, hey, and he's with, with his golf buddies. And here's what they said. I'm not kidding you. You go first. Dear God, dear God, just let me hit the ball. I don't even care where it goes. Just don't let me whip it. I'm telling you, that it's not just scary inviting. It's also scary to be invited. So when someone comes up to me and says, hey, I am, uh-oh, what is this going to do? Why would we risk that? Because that's who we are. And let me close with this. The reason we risk is because it's the gospel. Because Jesus says to his, listen to what he says to the church in Revelation 3. I stand at the door and I knock. He's saying this to us as believers. He's knocking. Why? So if you hear me call and open the door, I'll come right in and sit down to supper with you. Conquerors will sit alongside me at the head table just as I, having conquered, took the place of honor at the side of my father. That's my gift to the conqueror. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm inviting Come alongside the table, sit next to me. See the position that I've put you in. See who I've made you to be. Now live out of that. Live out of that. Let me just close with this. I've had the privilege of traveling to many third world countries. One of the hardest experiences when you're there as a guest is to come out of the house after you've eaten a big meal knowing that all the kids that are outside have not eaten at all. And so I've kind of practiced this idea of sticking dessert and stuff in my pocket so that when I come out, I can give to the kids because they haven't eaten. It's an understanding that when you have abundance, the joy of giving to those who do not. But that's an understanding of who we are. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand what the Lord has given you? Do you understand what he's made you to be? Do you understand how he longs to meet your deepest desires and to change expectation into hope? Do you understand the level in which he calls us now to step into each other's journey and to love each other well? So let's invite. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness that you invite us. Lead us now, I pray, Father. And to your grace, open our eyes to your presence. In Christ's name, amen.